Well, we are so super thank you, thankful for you. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving weekend. Um, I hope that you're not too sleepy, that you can make it through uh, the next 30 minutes without dozing off. But if, if not, I'll take the heat for that, okay? It's my fault. It's all on me. Uh, my name is Steve. I'm the campus pastor here at the Noblesville campus. And uh, over the, uh, I, wa- I want to know how many of you, now that Thanksgiving is over, officially over, how many of you have watched at least one Christmas movie or TV special yet? Raise your hand. Okay, good. Most of the room. How many of you are, do not watch any of it until after Thanksgiving? Okay. I, I don't want you people to judge me, all right? When I say what I'm about to say, for the last several weeks, my wife and I have settled down a couple evenings a week and watched the Christmas movie uh, on Netflix. Just a couple times a week. We've done that probably since Halloween. And I know, I know some of you are a little bit judgy about that, but I want you to know that my goal for this next month is to watch every Christmas movie and special that I can possibly watch. That's, that's, that's my uh, long-term goal. I, I love Christmas. I love Christmas. And the truth is, quite honestly, I can watch a Christmas movie pretty much any time of the year, except maybe February. I don't like watching movies about snow in February, but uh, I haven't quite gotten to that point where I can do that yet. But the truth is, I always have this little uh, ember of Christmas spirit that's like smoldering down in my heart. And all it takes is one or two songs, uh, movies, TV episodes to get that fire enraged, right? <laughs> to get it really burning again. And uh, so I wonder how that is for you. Like, and I wonder too about you, if you could say the same thing uh, about your faith in Jesus. Like, do you ever feel like your faith is kind of, sometimes it's really hot, and burning, and sometimes it's kind of dwindled down into embers. Uh, maybe you'd say, if you're, if you're a Jesus follower, maybe you'd say, I, I'm always going to say I'm a Christian, but sometimes my faith is up here, and sometimes it's down here. And when you get into one of those phases of life where it's down here, maybe you don't really know how to rekindle that flame, and you need something to come along and, and blow on those embers, right, to relight that fire for you. Well, we're going to talk about that today. We're continuing in our series called Planted, and we've been making our way through the New Testament this this fall, Uh, and if you've been with us this year, you know we've been making our way through the entire Bible this year, and we've made it, uh, we're really close. If you've been following along with us, you know that we're really close to the end. You're getting to those back pages of your Bible where every day is, sometimes it's one whole book, right? Sometimes it's a couple days to do a whole book, but we're going to look at 2 Timothy today. If you're right on track with the reading plan, I think you finished 2 Timothy today. Um, But if you uh, have your Bibles, you might turn there, 2 Timothy chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got some in the back of the room, and it's uh, page 800 and something in the 32, 832, I think, in most of those Bibles there. Now, 2 Timothy is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to his son in the faith, Timothy. Now, it's the second letter that he's written to Timothy, so it's called 2 Timothy, but this letter is different than the first one because it's not just the last letter he wrote to Timothy, uh, it's actually the last letter that Paul wrote in his ministry. He is uh, at the end of his life and ministry, he's actually in prison, he's in the middle of being tried uh, as a criminal because of his ministry, and that trial is not going well. As one commentator says that, in essence, 2 Timothy is Paul's last will and testament. It's uh, what he wants to pass on to the next generation of Christians, uh, and and Timothy represents them. 
As the same time at the recipient of his letter, we can tell by what Paul's writing to him that Timothy is struggling in his faith and in his ministry. So Paul takes this opportunity with this last letter to give Timothy some final words of encouragement. And if you're somebody that's struggling in your faith, I hope this will be encouraging for you today as well. Let's take a look. We're going to start in 2 Timothy 1.1, and I'll have those verses on the screen if you want to follow along there. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life, that is in Christ Jesus. He says to Timothy, my dear son, uh, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did with a clear conscience. As night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice and I, and persuaded now lives in you also. Now, Paul refers to Timothy as my dear son. Uh, The ESV, English Standard Version, if you're reading from that translation, says my beloved son. But Paul isn't Timothy's biological father. He's his spiritual father. He's cared for Timothy. He's, He's mentored him. You could say he's discipled him. Timothy was a disciple of Paul's. And you can hear in Paul's voice a genuine love for Timothy. He, he says things in, in uh, other parts of this book and another letter, uh, another, the other letter he wrote to Timothy. He says things like, night and day, I constantly pray for you. I long to see you. When I do see you, I'll be filled with joy. And then Paul brings up his faith story. We see that in verse 5. He says, I am reminded of your sincere faith. And it's here where Paul introduces the primary topic of his letter. This is what he's going to talk about for most of the letter. It's Timothy's faith. It's, it's a sincere faith, Paul says. Uh, a little more complete translation would say, your faith that dwells within you. And so Paul begins to encourage Timothy. Timothy, your faith, that faith in Jesus, that faith within you, your belief in Christ is the foundation of your life. He's going to go on. Let's keep reading verse 6. He says, for this reason, for what reason? Well, because your faith is the foundation of your life. He says, I remind you to fan, the, fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you, through the laying on of my hands. Now, what is this gift of God that Paul's talking about? In Timothy's case, it's probably his calling, his calling to minister, because Paul had laid hands on him and given him that calling and anointed him as a minister of the gospel of Jesus. And uh, so now he's, he's encouraging him to fan that into flame again. Like we built this house a couple years ago, and uh, we have a gas fireplace in it now, which... Uh, it's fine. It's fine. You flip the switch and there's fire, right? It's uh, not very natural though. I loved in a previous house, we had a wood-burning fireplace and I love that. I love going out into the woods and cutting up a tree. I love bringing it into the house and scattering bark all over the floor and putting it in the fireplace and, and, and lighting the newspaper and hearing that match strike and seeing the, the flame grow and grow and rise and, and the, the smoke rise out there. But my wife hated it because, one, the house was always filled with smoke. I didn't quite ever figure that part out. And two, there were ashes everywhere all over the hearth when we were done because that, you'd let that flame go for a couple of hours and it'd start to burn down and then you had to... And then eventually, you would pass out. Um, no, <laughs> no, eventually that flame would get going again, and you'd have a fire. But it got down to those embers, and you'd, have to, you'd really have to fan that flame to get it going again, and it always left ashes everywhere. And, but like small embers, what we see here is Timothy's faith and ministry are in this point where they need rekindling. They need something to come along and, and, and blow on them, to fan them into flame. And, and maybe that's where you are today. 
Maybe that's what your faith feels like. Um, it feels like embers now because your marriage isn't really going the way you thought it would. Um, because your career seems stuck and you don't know how to possibly get it unstuck. Or because your kids are walking away from the faith and nothing you can say seems to make any difference. Maybe the Lord comes to you today and says, Let, let's, let's fan those embers back into flame. All right, let's get, let's get that, that faith burning again. And, here, and uh, where is that wind going to come from? Well, let's go to verse 7. He says this, For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Just as Paul reminds Timothy, uh, and we need to be reminded today, that the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is our source of life. It's our source of power. The, the word here for timid means uh, fearfulness or cowardice. Uh, fear and timidity don't come from the Lord. They come from our flesh. They come from being afraid of something in our flesh. But the good news is we don't have to live according to our flesh. God has given us his spirit, and we can turn away from our flesh and turn towards his spirit, submit ourselves to God's Holy Spirit. And when we do that, God produces in us fruit, Paul writes in Galatians, the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And here he says, of power and love and self-discipline, although some translations say not self-discipline, but self-control. And I love that because in Galatians 5, he also says that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. And I wonder, did you ever just think that maybe you could use a little more self-control? Am I all by myself in this? I mean, did you ever think that this weekend when you were going for that third plate, that, boy, I could use a little more self-control? Or maybe... Maybe when you give that unwarranted second glance to the waiter or waitress, or maybe when you're at your favorite store and you set yourself a budget, but you find all these things that you've just got to have, and you think, man, I just wish I had a little bit more self-control. Paul tells Timothy that the Holy Spirit is what gives us that. The Holy Spirit gives us power and love and self-control, but not fear, not timidity. And then he continues, verse 8. He says, so... Because you don't have a spirit of fear, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now, to be uh, ashamed of something means that you're reluctant to do that thing because you're afraid of the consequences, right? You're afraid of the embarrassment or the humiliation that might come with that. Why would Timothy, this pretty well-known evangelist, be embarrassed or humiliated about his testimony. Well, remember, Paul is his spiritual father, his mentor, and Paul is suffering in prison because of his ministry, because of Jesus. And we, we look back and we think how glorious it must have been for Paul to live his entire life suffering for the gospel. But put yourself in Timothy's shoes, okay? He's looking at Paul, his father in the faith, and he sees his suffering and his imprisonment, his negative reputation. Just imagine, okay, imagine for a minute that your father is overseas in some really important but really secretive ministry in a place like maybe Iran or Afghanistan, and he eventually gets caught spreading the gospel of Jesus in one of these really harsh countries, and he gets put in prison, and he's mistreated, and he's put on trial, and his, his face is all over the news, and it looks like he's been beaten. He looks awful. He's in an orange jumpsuit with handcuffs. He looks like he's been deformed. What are you going to think? I mean, if you're normal, you're going to wonder, like, was he really supposed to be there in the first place? Would that be something that God would do is send my father to this 
place where he's going to be mistreated and put on trial and maybe killed for his faith? Was that really God's plan? It sure doesn't seem like God's blessing it. You can see why Timothy might be ashamed, right? Now, take it a step further. Imagine that your father writes you a letter and he says to you, come over here and join me. Come join me in my ministry. Don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of this ministry. Don't be reluctant. Don't be hesitant. Just embrace the suffering that's going to come with this. Can you see why Timothy might be a little timid or afraid? That's why Paul reminds Timothy, you don't have to do this of your own strength. Paul doesn't put pressure on Timothy's will here. He he goes back to the gospel. He goes back He reminds Timothy of Jesus' love and that he was rescued, what Jesus accomplished for us. Look, verse 8, he says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but now has been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and who has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. I want to draw your attention to three phrases that are in this passage right here. The first one is this phrase says, he has saved us, right? He has saved us. Uh, you know, Jesus, what has Jesus saved us from? Well, he's, he saved us from God's wrath. He saved us from God's judgment and condemnation. What did he save you from? You know, he saved you from God's judgment and condemnation, but if you're a follower of Jesus, there's a chance that he saved you from something that's very personal, and now you've got a story about that, right? I used to be X, but now because of Jesus's forgiveness, I am Y. I used to be anxious, but then I encountered the forgiveness of Jesus, and now I'm filled with peace. I used to be greedy, but then I encountered the forgiveness of Jesus, and now I'm content. I used to be prideful, but I accepted the forgiveness of Jesus, and now he humbled me. You know, what were you saved from? You were rescued from God's wrath. That's the gospel story. That's the good news of Jesus. It's the story of how God created us to be in a deep, personal, meaningful relationship with him, but we turned our back on him. We walked away The Bible calls that sin, when we go our own way instead of the way that God would have us go. And our sin separated us from God, which is our source of life. And the Bible says that God cared too much about us to leave us to suffer in our sin. And so he sent his one and only son, Jesus. Uh, God, not content to let us suffer, sent Jesus down to earth to live a perfect, sinless life and to die an atoning death or a death that paid for our sin on the cross, the death that we deserve. Jesus died that death. And then on the third day, he was raised to life again from the grave. And as he did that, it brings me to the second phrase that I want to point out to you. And it's this, that Christ destroyed death. (laughs) He destroyed death. Or as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory, as Paul said, through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean for us today? It means we don't have to fear death. Uh, Some of us just celebrated Thanksgiving, and there was a conspicuous absence at the table. There was an empty chair of someone who has always been there, should have been there, someone who was gone. And while you were glad to be together, maybe with the rest of your family, There was some pain in knowing that someone you love has passed on. You won't get to see them again, ever again, maybe. But the good news for us in this is that 
death is not the end of the story. Because of our faith in Christ, death is not final. It's temporary. It doesn't have to be final. That's what Paul's reminding Timothy of. Paul's saying, Timothy, don't fear death. I think Paul is telling Timothy, don't fear the death of your reputation. Don't fear the death of your physical body. Paul says, come join me. And he says this. This is the third thing I want to point out to you. He says that Jesus has called us. He has saved us and he has called us to a holy life. Now, what does it mean that Jesus has called us? What it means is that he's called each and every one of us who are followers of Jesus to a life of ministry. No, you don't have to quit your job and come to work at the church. We don't have any positions open right now, okay? But you are called to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I know that that's really scary for some people, but I want you to know that we do it out of response to what Jesus has done for us. All right, I want you to imagine this, okay? Just picture this with me for a minute. You have just slid into your nice, warm, comfy bed to go to sleep for the night. And you start to hear rain falling outside. And it's not a sprinkle. It's more of a downpour. And so before you doze off, you grab your phone and you check the forecast. And the forecast calls for heavy rains and widespread flooding throughout the night. But you reason with yourself. You figure, I'm going to be okay. And so you put your phone away and you turn over and you go to sleep. And you get about three hours of restless sleep, and then you wake up to the sound of water. And uh, you decide to get up out of bed and see what's going on. And as your foot hits the floor, you don't hear the normal uh, clomp that you would expect. You hear a squish. And you're stepping in three to four inches of freezing cold water. And it's rising. And so you make your way over to the window, and you look out, and you notice the whole neighborhood is flooding. And the water is rising, and other neighbors are up. And some people are bailing, bailing out their houses. Some people are uh, moving up to the second floor. And you call 911 and you realize that I need rescuing. And so you call 911 and the fire department says, we'll get there as soon as we can, but there's a lot of people that need rescuing. And so you wait for an hour, maybe two hours go by, and eventually a rescue boat shows up in your neighborhood and comes to your house and they pull you out of a second story window and take you back to the fire station. And finally, after a couple of hours of this, you're able to get some warm clothes, you dry off, you're able to get some food in your belly, and you can finally take a breath because you've been rescued, right? You're content. And then the fire chief comes over to you and he says, we've got so much to do. We've got so many people out there that need rescuing and we don't have enough workers. Would you join the rescue effort? Would you come with me? You'll be on my boat, okay? You'll be in, on my team. I'll show you what to do. I've got all the tools. You don't need to know anything. Just follow my lead and we can go rescue some more people. What do you do? Do you say no? Or are you so grateful, so thankful that you've been rescued that you tell that fire chief, yes, I'll do it. And he says, it's going to be hard work. It's going to be a long night, a long morning. But we've got everything you need. Just follow me. Well, because you're thankful and you've been rescued out of compassion for others, you take a deep breath and you answer the call, right? You go, you'll join the effort despite the risk and the difficulties that lie ahead. That's what Paul's telling Timothy. He says, Jesus rescued us and he's called us to join that rescue effort. He's leading the rescue effort. We are on his rescue team and the work is difficult and it comes with a cost. It's suffering and sacrifice, but we can trust that Jesus will take care of us. He will lead our team. He will accomplish his purposes through our lives. 
That's exactly what Jesus meant when he gave us the Great Commission. You know, we, we know from Matthew 28, we know this. We always emphasize this part. He said, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. We always emphasize that part. But the next part of it says this, and, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. See, Jesus is the one that does the rescuing. That's, I think when we talk about sharing our faith, what we get so worried about is that we're the ones that have to rescue people. Guys, we can't rescue anybody. Jesus does the rescuing. Our job is to join him in the rescue effort, to go out into the floodwaters with him, and we endure for the sake of those who still need saved. And we do it out of gratitude. We, we didn't deserve to be rescued. We aren't equipped to be the part of the rescue team, but Jesus came and rescued us because Jesus, the chief rescuer, has graciously invited us to join him in the rescue effort. We say yes. Jesus saves us, and then Jesus invites us to join him in saving others. What do we have to be timid about? Listen, I believe this. If Jesus can rescue you, then he can equip you, and he can empower you, he can protect you, and provide for you as he leads you to rescue others. Now, just read this for a minute. And, and, and the, in God's Holy Spirit, let it sink down into your soul. You know, if Jesus can rescue you, you don't, don't you think he can equip you and empower you and provide for you and protect you as he leads you to rescue others? So Paul reminds Timothy of this. But then he's going to give him some little nuggets, like some little words of encouragement that as, as we read through these this week, we thought these would be helpful for you too, especially if you're struggling in your faith or, or maybe you just feel like it's a little bit light right now. And so let's take a look. There's three things I want to share with you this morning from the rest of 2 Timothy. The first one is this. The Holy Spirit will help guard your faith in Jesus. I find this so encouraging, and I hope you will as well. And it leaves me thankful for God's Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. It leaves me praising God for, God, for his Holy Spirit. Here's what Paul says to Timothy. He says, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Now that word guard just means to keep safe or to protect, right? Some translations say, guard the treasure that was entrusted to you. Do you have a, do you have a place where you keep your treasure? I'm not going to come to your house and try to rob it, but do you have like a box, a, a safe deposit box at a bank, or maybe you've got a locking safe at your house where you keep things you don't want to lose, right? You keep your passports in there. Maybe you keep your birth certificate in there. Maybe you keep the deed to your car or the um, title to your car in there. You've got a place because you want things to be protected. You don't want anybody to get a hold of them. You know, that's what we do. We guard things that are valuable to us. The Holy Spirit wants to guard or protect the good deposit or the treasure, your faith in Jesus that dwells within you. He wants to help. Jesus described the Holy Spirit in two ways. First, he said he was an advocate who comes alongside of us and helps us. That's what an advocate is. It's somebody who supports us, fights for us, right? Who takes that battle into their own hands. And second, Jesus said the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth that he guides us into all truth. This is how the Holy Spirit wants to protect us, to guard us, to support you, to fight for you, to grow your faith by guiding you into truth. Now, how does the Holy Spirit practically guard our faith and guide us into truth? Well, Paul says it's through the word of God. Look at this, 2 Timothy 3, 14 says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it 
and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he says this, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul reminds Timothy, your faith in Christ has to be rooted in scripture. It has to be, it's the Bible. It's in the Bible where we learn true wisdom, the wisdom where salvation comes from through faith in Jesus. Now, Timothy didn't have a copy of the New Testament. He didn't have a leather-bound model with the words of Jesus in red. He, He didn't have access to dozens of different translations at his fingertips on his smartphone, but we do. Here's the point. When you have access to God's word, you have everything you need to guard and protect your faith. You are better equipped than Timothy to protect your faith, to read God's word, to to go and share your faith. All scripture, Paul says, is God-breathed. The the spirit of God and the word of God work hand in hand. They work hand in hand with one another to help us guard our faith. God teaches us and corrects us through the Holy Spirit and it's through the Bible, through Uh, that God's spirit equips us for the good work he has prepared for us. The Holy Spirit wants to help guard your faith in Jesus, but God doesn't want you to just keep that faith to yourself. And so the second thing, the second thing that Paul encourages Timothy with is that he wants us to share our faith. He wants Timothy to share your faith in Jesus with others. Paul wants Timothy to fan fan his embers of faith into a flame, and this also means putting it into action. He encourages him to share his faith. Look at chapter two. He says, you then, my son, Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Now, once again, Paul reminds Timothy about this. He says that your strength comes from Jesus. Now, this passage is often used as a model of what good disciple-making looks like. If you read this passage carefully, you'll see that there are four generations of followers of Jesus in here. Paul is one. He says, the things you have heard me say. Paul is the first one. Timothy, the things you, Timothy, have heard me say. I want you to uh, uh, entrust to reliable people, three, who will be qualified to teach others, four. Paul is saying, I taught you. You go teach reliable people who will teach others. I bet you can see that kind of multi-generational faith at work in your life somewhere. Maybe somebody who passed on the faith to you, and you've gone and done that to somebody else. Or maybe the person who passed on their faith to you told, that, told you about the person who passed on their faith to them. You know, do you see that? The third generation, fourth generation faith? Who is it? Is it, is it a friend? Is it a coworker? Is it a neighbor? Um, do you have a, somebody that you're praying for that you're thinking of passing on that faith to? Is it a, a coworker or another student at your school? I, I'll share about a little bit about how this worked in my life. Um, my wife came to faith because of a very bold neighbor named Rick. Rick came over and shared the gospel with her, and because she came to faith, we started going to church together, and I came to faith at that church. And then fast forward many years later, I became a pastor. I started investing in others after I became a pastor. You're not supposed to wait until after you become a pastor. Uh, I started investing in a man named Zach. For a few years, Zach and I met together every Thursday, and then Zach started investing in a student, a kid named Jared. Now, here's what's cool about that. Rick never met Zach. He never met Jared. But they're a part of his spiritual family tree. 
Like he has a spiritual ancestry that he knows nothing about. He, the first generation doesn't always get to see the fourth generation on earth. Each generation just has to do their part to share their faith in Christ with others so that they can share it in others. But someday in heaven, I believe that Rick is gonna be amazed when he gets a chance to look at his spiritual family tree and go, well, I, I didn't even know that branch existed. Like, I didn't even know that was a thing. And uh, I think God will look at him and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, here's the thing about sharing the gospel with people. If you don't share your faith in Christ with somebody on a regular basis, you're, or if you do it on a regular basis, you're going to experience some suffering. It's not comfortable to share something when you're not sure how someone will react. And so that's behind Paul's next words of encouragement to Timothy, and that's to embrace the suffering. Sharing your faith is going to bring, back, bring about suffering in your life, but it's worth the reward. And because look to your left. Right now, look to the person to your left. All right, now look to the person on your right. One of those two people is afraid to share their faith, and maybe both of them. Because they're suffering, right? One, one author uh, said, a clear presentation of the gospel places one in direct conflict with the world. It's not comfortable. It's suffering. It, but it comes with a job. Paul makes this point to Timothy by giving him three illustrations. A soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. Look at uh, first, 2 Timothy 2, verse 3. He says, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Each of these three workers, the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer, they all have jobs, Paul says, that come with suffering. In fact, the Bible Project in the video, if you watch this video about 2 Timothy, says this, all three of these people are committed to something bigger than themselves, and they're willing to sacrifice and endure for a greater goal. And notice that Paul tells, them, Paul tells Timothy, each of them receive a reward. The soldier gets to please his commander, the athlete receives the victor's crown, and the farmer gets the reward of the harvest. He gets to share in the crop. That their suffering and sacrifice is worth the reward. And this is true for everyone who calls himself a Christian. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. He says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You know, church tradition teaches that Timothy was stoned to death for his faith. How did Paul know that persecution would be a part of Timothy's story? Because it was part of his own story. And if we're doing it right, persecution is going to be part of our story too. Friends, if you're not being persecuted for your faith, are you sharing enough? Are you talking to people about it enough? But the reward is so worth it. I've got to tell you, when you start seeing people rescued out of the second story window of hell, it's so worth it. Paul, in his life, had the privilege of seeing so many people come to faith in Jesus. And at the end of his letter, he's looking back on his life and reflecting back on everything that he's been able to accomplish through Jesus and through the Holy Spirit. And he says this in 2 Timothy 4, 7. We're going to close with this. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me but also to all who have longed for his appearing. 
You know, he's talking about us. That's us. We long for his appearing. And that's the last part of the gospel story. You know, Jesus died. He rose from the dead. But he's coming back. He promises he's coming back. And and the Bible says it'll be soon. Now, that might be before Christmas. Or it may still be years from now. We don't know, but he's coming. And scripture says he's coming soon. And so with that in mind, what more important cause could you give your life to than joining the rescue mission. I promise that nothing will fan the flames of your faith more than sharing your faith with others and seeing people that you love and care about come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. He's coming back. He's coming back. Let's be ready. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we long for your appearance. We wait patiently for what the Bible says is soon. And to us, to me, Lord, it doesn't seem like it's been soon enough. But scripture also tells us that you are patient, wanting none to perish. And God, the honest truth is, I've got people in my life right now who I love and I care about that if today was the day, they would perish. And so Lord, would you rekindle my faith into flame? so that I can share the gospel with others, so that I can go and share that story with even more people, so that even more people will be rescued, so that even more people will come to faith in you, so that on that day of your appearing, there will be even more people in heaven because of the work that I did, because of the work that Genesis Church did, because of the work that every person in their seats did to rescue others. Lord, we will trust you with that. And when that happens, and on that day, we will give you all the glory, all the honor that you deserve. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.